This is Fearless Rebel Radio, a podcast about body positivity, self-worth, anti-dieting, and feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanen, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 88, and I am interviewing Diane Bondi about the intersection of racism and yoga culture. And we talk about diet culture and why diet culture and yoga should not interact and go together, and the real roots of of yoga and the philosophies of yoga, plus so much more. You can find all of the links and resources mentioned in this great episode at summerinandin.com forward slash 88. That's 88. Before we begin, just a reminder, if you haven't already done so, I would really appreciate it if you went to iTunes to leave a review for this show. Leaving a review helps others to find this podcast and the information that you are learning here. You can contribute to the dismantling of diet culture by leaving a review. And I mean that. And you can do that by going to iTunes, searching for Fearless Rebel Radio, clicking rating and reviews and click to leave a review or give it a rating or go to summerinandin.com forward slash reviews to find the direct link there. Second, you can get the free 10 day body confidence makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. Today's guest is Diane Bondi. Diane is a celebrated yoga teacher, social justice activist, and leading voice of the Yoga for All movement. Her inclusive view of yoga asana and philosophy inspires and empowers thousands of followers around the world, regardless of their shape, size, ethnicity, or level of ability. She applies over 1,000 hours of training to help her students find freedom, self-expression, and radical self-love in their yoga practice. She shares her message and provides millions of followers with affordable access to online yoga classes, workshops, and tutorials at her virtual studio, yogastea.com. She is a spokesperson for diversity in yoga and yoga for larger bodies, as seen in her work with Pennington's, Gayam, and the Yoga and Body Image Coalition. Her work is published in the books Yoga and Body Image and Yes, Yoga Has Curves. This episode is awesome. You are going to learn a lot, I think, especially if you're someone like me who is coming from a more privileged perspective. And I think that this is a really important discussion that we have here today. So do listen and uh, take take Diane's advice. And I think I think you're gonna love her. So let's get started with the show. Hi, Diane, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me, Summer. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. And I know you've got some events coming up. So it's, uh, I really, really appreciate you being here because you've been someone that uh, I've wanted to have on the show for a while. And I know you're a fellow Canadian. So I'm excited for this, <laughs> this conversation. <laughs> yes. And we found out that we grew up in the same city, which is really interesting as well. Isn't that, isn't it though? I don't often beat very many people who are from Burlington. So it's, and it's funny how everybody from the like Burlington, Hamilton, St. Catharines, Niagara Falls will just claim Toronto as home. So I'm always like, are you from Toronto proper or did you live in the burbs? You know, it's just kind of funny. Burbs, burbs all the way. Yeah. We could, we could talk about like Emma's back porch and right? <laughs> yeah, big star sure. and all the other places. that And, and yeah. All of oh, that, yeah. You know. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, that we're not gonna we're not gonna spend the show talking about that because that although that would be really cool. Maybe we'll do that another show in and of itself. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I'd love for you to tell our listeners about how you got into this work. Ah, I call myself the uh, accidental activist, and I have been practicing yoga on and off for most of my life. So I just turned 47 a couple years ago, a couple years ago, a couple weeks ago, like at the beginning of April. And I've been practicing yoga like since I was three years old. It was something that my mother was doing, and it's something that she introduced me to. And and it kind of helped me navigate 
my life, navigate school, help me with stress uh, relief. And when I became pregnant with my first son, I decided that I would jump more fully into my yoga practice just because I wanted to have, you know, a natural birth. And it kind of took off from there for me. I started noticing after I had my son uh, and I started practicing outside of my home that a lot of yoga spaces that I visited weren't really friendly or inclusive. I didn't see a lot of diversity. I didn't see a lot of yoga that was accessible for people who were in in different bodies. And uh, to clarify, I've been practicing for a long time, and I'm very fortunate to have a body that does what I ask it to do when I ask it to do. But I noticed how many people were struggling to keep up and this this kind of culture of, I call it the diet and fitness culture that shows up in the yoga industry, which I think is super problematic, this whole self-hate thing going on. And I noticed that this was coming up for me uh, as I was practicing in these spaces and I was noticing it for others. And so I just became this, you know, fat yogis get to take up space. So I wrote this blog post for Elephant Journal that was called Yoga Isn't Just for Skinny White Girls. And I know the um, the clickbait, it was clickbait, uh, the title, but I was saying that yoga was lacking a lot of diversity and it was lacking this feeling of unity when that's literally what it means. <laughs> like the, the, yes. the term yoga literally means unity. And I was seeing a lot of like dysfunction, not only in yoga spaces, but on the yoga mat. And I thought to myself, someone should speak to this. Someone should speak to the fact that there's no diversity on the mat. You know, classes are not inclusive, you know, on a lot of levels, not only based on what you look like, but based on pricing and where yoga studios were. And this, this culture that I just was really sad about because this was not my experience of yoga. So I started speaking out and writing about it. I'm not one to not share my feelings. And my husband the other day described me as opinionated. And I was like, I wear that shit with a badge. I am definitely (laughs) opinionated. Do I think everybody's entitled to my opinion? No, but I think everybody's entitled to the facts and that we need to, uh, to think for ourselves and we need to observe what's going on, you know, in yoga culture in the world at large. I would say that our yoga mat, this 24 by 68 piece of plastic or rubber, whatever Manduka makes their mats out of, <laughs> mm-hmm. that is a, is the reflection or just like a microcosm of what's actually going on in the world at large. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be in our own self-awareness and see how we continue to perpetuate discrimination, see how we continue to perpetuate sexism, homophobia, transphobia, all the things that keep us from unity, all the things that keep us from being one within this practice and ultimately within the world. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That's such a good way of, of saying it. And I'm curious to know what your relationship with your body was like growing up. Like, did, were you always comfortable with the way that you felt? Or did you go, kind of go into that whole fitness culture before you found the other side? Well, I, I never, I was never comfortable with my body uh, growing up. I've only become comfortable with my body, I would say, believe it or not, since I had my kids. So only in the past, maybe 13 or 14 years have I, have I, you know, what I say made, made peace with my body. I, um, Grew up as a pretty active kid, and then around eight years old, I started gaining weight. And I had parents who thought they were doing me a favor by putting me on a diet and giving me diet pills as young as eight years old. And my dad sat down with me and said, you know, I never wanted to have a fat daughter, and you're a disappointment because you're fat. And so that started me down a very ugly eating disorder or disordered eating for a lot of years. And it really stemmed um, or really fed my dissatisfaction with myself. And and I lived with a lot of self-hate. And because I lived in that place of self-hate, not only, you know, hearing that from your parents, but as a person of color, taking in all the stuff that goes on in the world that tells you that that you're not good enough, or you're not worthy, or that you're second best because uh, you're brown, like all those all those messages coming at you from your family and from the outside world wreaked havoc on my self-esteem. And so I spent a lot of years doing some very destructive and hurtful behaviors to myself because I just, I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy in my body. I wasn't happy with how I looked. And, and the way the world treats you was just kind of reinforcing, you know, that dissatisfaction. So it took me a long time. I spent a lot of years in eating disorders treatment centers. I uh, was shipped off to McMaster at some at one point. Mm-hmm. Uh, McMaster University for their eating disorder treatment program. And they had a brand new therapist who was running that program at the time. And their idea of fixing your your self-esteem and your disordered eating pattern was to say, well, just get over it. So yeah, I know. (laughs) 
come a long way. But this person was sitting in with a group of other therapists who were like, uh, it's not that easy, but they felt like, I don't understand just eat already. I'm going to solve this problem in 15 minutes so I can get get to my golf game or whatever it was that they felt was more important. But so it was a long, tenuous path to making friends with myself. And then when I went off to uh, university um, after my high school days, I lived in residence and I gained, I think, 20 or 30 pounds that first year because you're on a meal plan and you have to eat so many dollars on your meal plan because you never got your money back at the end of the year. So it really made for a lot of overeating at that point. And, uh, you know, just overall, once again, you're under a great deal of stress. There's a lot of outside influences. So I re my eating disorder reemerged, but it uh, reemerged as uh, an addiction to exercise. So mm. I went from one extreme to the other, and I spent a lot of years in university battling my body. And it wasn't until I got, and this went on right into my 30s, and it wasn't until I got pregnant with my son that I realized that I was sharing this body with somebody else. And so this destructive behavior that I was creating to my body wasn't going to, you know, wasn't going to work anymore. What if I did something to my body that was harmful to my baby and he was born because he was born with something wrong with him because of something I did that could have been avoided. So that is what changed the way I looked at my body. It became this miracle that could build this, this human being. And it, and it, and it kind of, it sunk in for me because it took me a long time to get pregnant because I was over-exercising and not eating. And my body was like, we can't do all these things that you're asking us to do at the same time. So I remember my doctor saying to me, you're going to have to gain 15 pounds if you want to have a baby. And that was the like the end of the world for me. And the years leading up to starting a family, every person I saw at the gym who was working out and had kids, I was like, do you think I'm going to be able to maintain my size zero body, which is unhealthy and unnatural for me? if I have a kid and they were all like, Oh, yeah, it'll be fine. And you know, you're pretty dedicated and you're here all the time and it'll be fine. And this was my big fear is that I wasn't going to be able to get back to this unrealistic size that I spent all of my time maintaining. So it was a real freedom for me when I when I got pregnant, and I could just focus on growing a healthy human being and not focus on squeezing into a certain size of genes or, you know, looking a certain way that whatever society dictated that I could never live up to anyway. So that was, I think, the turning point for me when I started looking at my behaviors, I uh, started using my uh, yoga and meditation to really examine who I was and it takes a long time and self-reflection and self-study and decide going forward, is this the life I wanted to live forever, where I was completely consumed with what I looked like and I wasn't paying attention to what was going on in the world or what was happening around me. So that was the huge shift for me to from this place of self-hate to ultimately a place of neutrality towards my body and then the development of acceptance and appreciation for my body. So that was kind of how it evolved for me and it came from a place of figuring out myself, so a place of self-awareness. So I think that was the first step for me to make peace with my body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm gonna, I want to talk to you more about the, the self-awareness and, and the mindfulness as it relates to how that can help to change you know, the beliefs that we have about ourselves. But before we get there, I I would love to know the the influence of racism on oh. your on your body image and your self worth and and how you see that impacting other women of color. You know what? I just read a Huffington Post article yesterday that a friend of mine sent to me in a private message that I ended up posting on my on my personal page. So I post a lot of political stuff on both of my pages, my professional page, but I I post really deeply personal political stuff on my personal page, because I feel like um, that's a safer place to post stuff. I'm not going to get trolls on my personal page, because I, I monitor that very, very closely. But as I don't know if people know this. I want to say as we know, because the people that I hang out with and the people that I surround myself with are very familiar with the policing of of women's bodies and specifically the policing of black women's bodies and how that shows up in the world. When I was growing up, the symbols of beauty, um, like I mentioned, I'm 47, the symbols of beauty and the people who were, you know, most desirable were people that look like the Charlie's Angels. Like I didn't grow up seeing people who look like me represented in mainstream culture. I didn't see in the 70s, primarily for the most part, I didn't see a lot of a lot of people that look like me in positive roles or a lot of people that look like me 
just represented at all. I remember some of the TV shows that came out were one of them was Give Me a Break. And the main character in that uh, was a woman named Nell Carter and all the stuff that she had to endure as a woman of size. I like to call us a woman of size or a woman of an abundant size. You know, that was our, that was what was represented to me. And then it wasn't until the Cosby show showed up in the in the early 80s that we started to see people of color represented in a positive light. We weren't all drug dealers. We weren't all single moms. We weren't all poor. We weren't all on welfare. And I remember, you know, I had primarily white friends growing up. And when the Cosby show came out, my neighbor down the street who grew up with me, um, I remember walking to school with him and him saying like, well, that's not even realistic that, you know, there'd be a family of black people that would have a lawyer and a doctor. And I would say, it totally is realistic. And it's happened in my own family where there are two professionals raising kids. And we had an argument walking to school because he didn't want to hear that. Like he just couldn't seem to piece together that there could be two professional people, you know, working in a household or people of color could be professionals. And I, I even butt up against that, you know, within my own family. I married, uh, my husband is white and his parents are super old and they have some really interesting ideas about who people of color are or how they can refer to them. And I remember at one point having a conversation with a member of his family and her being surprised either about either in my ability to talk oh you're so articulate or, or, you know, that I knew people of color who had important jobs and who were changing the world. This seems surprising to her. And I remember saying, why are you so surprised by that? And she said, I don't know. And the truth of the matter is that we don't see that on a regular basis. And when we do, everybody's surprised, right? Like the, the movie who uh, Hidden Figures that came out this year, did anybody know there was a group of black women mathematicians that put a man on the moon, right? Yeah. Like these are, we don't celebrate those things. The only thing that often gets celebrated is white culture because that's the dominant culture and anything else is often left to the wayside. So then when you show me a picture of what you see as beautiful, right? Like everybody had that Farrah Fawcett poster of her in her bathing suit, I think in a red bathing suit that everybody had on their wall all the time. There are only certain people who are going to be able to fit that that look. And the rest of us are expected to look like that. And we know that bodies of color have different shapes, different sizes, different proportions look different. And when we when uh, I was growing up in the 60s, 70s and 80s, that was often made fun of. People made fun of your hair. People made fun of the fact that, you know, I had big thighs or I had a booty or I was thicker. And these were things that were indicative of my culture. But those were things that weren't celebrated in mainstream culture. So it gave dominant culture the opportunity to make fun of that or to look down on that. And if you're constantly being fed that, in your everyday life, how can you ever feel empowered or feel good about yourself? Some of the number one countries in the world that bleach their skin are in Africa, mm. right? Every, there's this idea that the closer you are, the white, the better you are. I remember at one of the um, very first jobs I had in university, my boss was hitting on me and his big compliment to me was, well, you don't really have a lot of black features, so you're really attractive. And he thought that was a compliment to me. And I'm just like, really? Wow. Like, this is the kind of stuff that reinforces that, you know, you will never live up to this idealized standard of beauty. And again, how are you ever supposed to feel empowered? And the minute you start creating situations for people of color to become empowered, right? Because we're not accepted in this particular society. So we create our own representation. All of a sudden, we're separating ourselves. And all of a sudden, this becomes some kind of reverse racism because we are celebrating people of color. The reason these things happen is we're not celebrated in mainstream media or mainstream culture. And we have to create our own places of representation and our own places to feel safe. And the minute that happens, the fragility of white culture starts to pick at us. Oh my God, why do you need your own this, that, or the other thing? Because I'm not welcome in your space and you're not interested in making me welcome in your space. And I need a space to go where I feel safe and welcome. So I need to create my own space. If your space is welcoming and if you saw my humanity or if you even saw me as a as a person, you would understand that everybody needs a place where they belong and where they see people that look like them and they can relate. Like some of my favorite days is to go to the hair salon and hang out with other women of color and talk about the things that 
we rub up against in the world because when you talk about them sometimes with your friends who are part of the dominant culture, you're complaining or you're being a victim or does that even happen anymore? Don't you think you're exaggerating or aren't you being sensitive? So it's nice to go somewhere where people actually have the same experiences as, as you and you can commiserate. But I find it I find it very interesting. I don't know why there's so much fragility around talking about what's actually happening in the world because that's the only way we're going to change it. Like people need to get over their fragility around race and especially white people need to start talking about race with their children and start actually looking at themselves and knowing that you do have bias and you do have prejudice because that's the way we all were raised. And it's time to kind of look at that and kind of start to dissect where we're still perpetuating these ideas based on bad information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, um, you said so many good things there. And, you know, just speaking for myself, I think, you you know, I've really only woken up more recently. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, because of uh, a lot of due to, Obviously, the work that I do and and speaking to and speaking to people like yourself, but the political climate in the US and seeing, Mm. seeing what's that what that's done, because I think a lot of people with privilege like myself, Uh in just thinking, oh, no, like, there's not a lot of racism, you know, and and kind of living in this like pleasant bubble of denial. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, seeing what's really happened with the with the with the political climate in the US and that kind of coming to the surface and realizing like this is still this is a huge uh, problem. Yeah, like and and I think people think like it's gotten worse but I think it's just always been there and now we're uh, we're more seeing it. We're seeing it. Oh yeah. 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 It was interesting when Barack Obama ascended to the presidency and we were all I was also so hopeful and I remember watching my boys or having my boys watch his inauguration because of them being mixed ethnicity. I don't believe in calling people biracial because there's only one race, which is the human race. Races are social constructs created to divide us. You know, and I think it's interesting. I always say this when I'm talking about race to people. So we have, just as an example, to make it clear to people. So we have species of flowers, right? There's a flower and then there are different species of flowers, right? It's the same with humanity. We have human beings and then there's different ethnicities of human beings, but we're all the same species, right? So I just looking at showing my boys that a man of color could ascend the White House. And then everybody was running around, not people of color, but everybody was running around saying, oh, we're in a post-racial society. Barack Obama is the president. And then I watched the that family take on more hate and more racism and put up with so much disrespect over the course of eight years. The most disrespected president in the history of that nation, and then ask people, where do you see this post-racial thing? Just because a black man ascended to the White House doesn't mean racism was over, but there's this whole idea that, you know, we have affirmative action now, racism is over, we have this, racism is over, and nobody wants to actually look at the facts. Affirmative action helped white women more than it helped any other minority. Mm. And if you don't believe it, there's a Harvard study on it and you can look it up. I'm not making this stuff up. So it's just interesting that we live just because we think that everybody has had the same life experience as us or because we haven't seen it personally, that it doesn't exist. And we're really quick to dismiss anybody else's experience, which I don't I don't understand how we get to be so self-aggrandizing and so sure of who of of the world that we're not opening to hearing anybody else's perspective or having empathy for anybody else's experience. It's super baffling to me, but it comes from always being in the majority, right? Like always having everything revolve around you. Like when you go to yoga class, chances are the teacher is going to look like you. You're going to get to practice in a place that feels comfortable to you. Other people in the room are going to be similar to you. And it's never going to occur to you when you look around the room that everybody's white in the room. Or if you're standing in line at the grocery store and you look at the magazine covers that everybody's white and it doesn't click into you because you're not part of the group that's excluded, I think. I think if it's not 
in your, you know, if it's not in your consciousness, you don't pay attention to it. For example, I don't have children with autism, so I don't know anything about what it's like to have a child with autism or the stats on that because it's not in my, it's not in my wheelhouse. It's not in my reality. And I think that's, that's the case for, for white folks. And I think now that the demographics of the world is changing, what you're seeing with the ascension of the new president of the United States is this fear that people, and it's especially this fear around men, white men losing power power in society where they have always had power, where things have always revolved around them and they just don't want to share that power. And I think this is like white supremacy's last stand. And you see how it's going, right? It's crumbling at every corner. The world is changing and people are going to have to get over their white fragility and people are going to have to get over, you know, being offended when they, you know, get called out on making bigoted statements or making racist statements. People are going to have to get over that and start really looking at how they walk through the world and how they continue to perpetuate a system of discrimination that's been around since the beginning of time. So, you know, and that that stems from self-study. You have to look at yourself and it's hard to look at yourself and I get it, but that's the only way we're going to evolve and move forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think like you said, it's, it's, it's looking at the self, there's discomfort in it. So it's like, you want to just live in denial and try and avoid it, but it's, (laughs) it's like, what's that doing? And, you know, if, if you care about equality and justice, you have to, you have to examine yourself and your own privileges and be willing to, to lose privileged in order to have equality like they're you can't have you can't have equality and like they, they're not going to coexist so it's true or at least at least share your privilege like yeah. I think people are afraid of losing where they are and I think people honestly want to believe that because they're a good person and because they've done the right thing this is how they've ended up where they are in the world right and that's kind of like this whole spiritual bypassing thing that I see in yoga that you know it's my karma to be in this place and you can write off you know all bad deeds or wherever people are in their life due to karma. And I don't think that's necessarily their truth. There, you know, there are systems in place that are designed to keep certain people in power and make it harder for other people to get power. But sharing the privileges and rights and power that you already have does not oppress you, right? Mm -hmm. It actually makes you more powerful, but people are so afraid of things that are different. And I think there was a study done in the States and I, I, you know, I'm not sure where I heard that. So I probably heard it on Facebook, which means it's totally not credible, but um, that some of the people voted or a lot of people voted for the current administration. I won't say his name because I just can't do it because they were afraid of this increase in diversity. Like, you know, they, somebody made a statement that white folks are becoming extinct. And I was just like, uh, not where I live. I don't, you know what I mean? And even when the demographic shift and there's, you know, and there's more people of color than there are white folks, white folks are still going to have all the power and the money and the privilege. So I don't really know what people are afraid of. Like the demographics are going to shift, but the power differential is probably not going to shift that much. And that's why that's why there's so much pushback. Like you're going to have to deal with a world where everybody, you know, gets representation. And that's hard for people because sharing your power often feels like you're losing power or sharing your privileges often feels like you're losing your privileges. And it's all in the way that you look at it. And that and that's not the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so well said. And I'm curious to know, like tying this back to yoga culture. And yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. So I mean, well, what are what are your thoughts on, you know, like the intersection of of racism and yoga, yoga culture and the, the, you know, the ways in which yoga culture is exclusionary? So (laughs) there's some mainstream yoga publications who I'm not going to mention their name. They know I don't like them. We've had several conversations back and forth who have been at the forefront of creating yoga culture and presenting yoga culture and has only until very recently, I would say in the last two years, have made no effort to show any kind of diversity on the mat. It's become this fitness magazine, right? So when I first picked up this magazine, when I started practicing more regularly, I would flip through the pages and 90% percent of the book would be advertising and the other percent of the book would be white people doing yoga. And I'd be like, where are the people of color? Where are the fat people? Where are the people practicing with disabilities? Like where are all these other people that I know for a fact practice yoga? Because when I had my yoga studio space, those people were in my classes, right? So I was just like confused by that. But I've noticed those images are always the images that are most pushed forward. It's only, I want to say, 
been the past three years, maybe since 2014, where the body positive movement has kind of gotten its footing and we're seeing a change in mainstream yoga publications around what they're featuring, but not without a lot of pushing towards them to change. Like they're not, they were never interested in representing any, anybody else. And I had this very taxing conversation a couple of weeks ago in Toronto. I did this Yes Talk for the Yoga Alliance. And we, I had this conversation with the person who was organizing the Yes Talk. And I said, I'm walking around the Toronto Yoga Festival or the Toronto Yoga Conference, Toronto being one of, if not the most diverse city in Canada. And all the advertising that's all over and all the, the you know, the pictures that are put out for the conference are all white folks doing yoga. But I walked around the conference and I saw a lot of people of color at the conference, but they're not featured in any of the advertising. And when I went through the magazine to pick out, you know, if what what classes I want to take, I haven't been to the Toronto Yoga Conference in five years because I'm just tired of that being of it not being representative of yoga and them not having people of color as presenters because I know there's lots of great teachers out there who never get an opportunity. It's always the same people they hire. It's out of the 75 presenters in that catalog, one person was a person of color and the rest all fit the idealized standard of beauty. Most of them were women. Most of them were hypermobile. Most of them were, you know, uh, conventionally attractive. And I just thought to myself, as a person of color flipping through this magazine, it is clear to me that I'm not welcome here because there is nobody else that looks like me in this. There was not a single person who was in a larger body. There was not a single person who, well, there was one person, sorry, who was a person of color and they were doing kirtan, but I have never seen them uh, make an effort to create, create any kind of diversity in their publication. And so I stopped going, like I can't support that, right? As a person of color, there are lots of great teachers and there are a lot of great teachers of color in the Toronto area alone that would be great to be running a workshop. I can think of four off the top of my head that I think could really be contributing to the conversation around yoga and diversity. And that's not, that's not featured. And that's not, that's not something that's explored. And I, and I see a lot of that still in mainstream yoga publications where it's always a hypermobile, thin, fair-skinned person representing yoga. I mean, Time Magazine uh, did a piece on yoga not too long ago, and the person on the cover representing yoga was a blonde white woman. It wasn't even a person of South Asian descent where the practice comes from. The same is is true of, you know, the mainstream yoga publications that are writing this. None of their their content contributors are South Asian. I think just recently they have Tipak Chopra doing whatever he's doing on there. But prior to that, nobody in that publication is of South Asian descent. Once again, the people who created this practice, right? These are people of color who created these practices. These are brown-skinned people who created this practice. Somebody sent me an article yesterday, some church somewhere in the United States, some Catholic church somewhere in the United States that's offering yoga classes is renaming the yoga classes because they feel that their Catholic population base will be somehow turned off by the spirituality that's associated with yoga practice and not come, so they're going to call it something else. And I thought... This really screams like the scrubbing of the culture out of this practice. It feels to me like we'll rename it and we'll call it exercise. And that takes away any brownness that's in it that might be distasteful to anybody (laughs) that might be practicing. Because I don't see how a yoga practice could interfere with your religious beliefs if you really understand what the practice is about. I found for me, it brought me closer to God. It made me so much more open to the teachings of that. So I just, I'm always blown away by how how we kind of scrub or we appropriate this practice and we don't give credit to the people who actually created it. And I did a talk at Princeton actually last week on this very topic. It was called the whitewashing of yoga. And they specifically asked me to come and talk about how, you know, my feelings around this and where it kind of started. And I just think if people really knew some of the things around yoga or how the the physical practice of yoga started, it was an oppressed people getting stronger in the event of a revolution to push back against the people who were colonizing them. And now I checked out this wonderful, wonderful artist. I'm trying to remember his name. It's on the tip of my tongue. I'm going to remember it anyway. His name is 
Shirag Bhakta, and he's got a, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing his name, uh, but he's got a, an Instagram page called Pardon My Hindi, and he's a man of South Asian descent who did a art project that was hosted at a art gallery in San Francisco, and it was called White People Doing Yoga. It was the hashtag White People Doing Yoga, and he presented this in 2014 because he did a Google search of yoga, and the first thing that came up was a lot of white folks doing yoga. And then the second thing came up were animals doing yoga. And then the third thing that came up was South Asian people doing yoga. But the South Asian people were depicted like cartoon characters or caricatures or spiritual mystics. So they weren't even humanized. They were like cartoon like. And it was just like he was like how does this happen? How does a dominant culture appropriate this? And then I become this caricature. It's like, it's like when you look at the Simpsons, think about the only person of color that's represented or one of the only people of color that's represented in the Simpsons. He's a stereotype caricature of a guy who owns a convenience store. Mm. And it seems like it's benign and it's funny, but what does that do to other South Asian kids that are watching that? And what does it tell white kids that are watching that? That this mm -hmm. is people are reduced to these stereotypes all the time. And he speaks about this $27 million, billion dollar industry that was like a modality of healing and that as part of his culture becomes this saleable object. And I really blame people, uh, um, industries like, and I, I refuse to say their name once again, I call them Moo Moo Melon. And <laughs> I live, I live in the home of, uh, I live in the, in the headquarters. I do. Yes. Uh, yeah. And their discriminatory sizing and yes. their, their lack of diversity in their advertising and their just hateful messages against women's bodies. And it's just, it's interesting that this the same people who are kind of scrubbing the culturalism out of yoga are the same group of people, rich white people are the same group of people that colonized India in the first place. It just he makes this connection to that. I was like, whoa, like yeah, that's wow. dude, that's deep <laughs> and so true. So colonization of yoga continues with these with these industries that don't take into consideration, don't feature South Asian people as models or as experts or, or anything. And it's always, you know, your whiteness always elevates you to to the part of expert every time without considering anybody else. And I just I think it's so sad. There's so many things that we're missing when we do that. And you don't have to answer this, or maybe you can't answer this, but like, what is the reaction when you speak up about this from from people who are coordinating these conferences? Because you know, you have a you have a big platform, you are you're pretty well known, and people are not listening. I mean, what is what is kind of their perspective on this? I'm just so baffled by it. And if you can't answer that, just say, I can't answer that. No, um, you know, I, what usually ends up happening for me, or sometimes I shouldn't say usually, because I kind of insulate and surround myself with people who are also doing this work. I'm certainly not the only person or, or the first person to be doing this work. But when I speak up about it, often they just ignore me or, you know, I have been giving the mainstream yoga publication a hard time for the last three years, like publicly calling them out on social media, um, yeah. writing articles and calling them out all the time. And they just pretty much ignore me. I'm their, you know, angry black woman that's coming at them. Or they'll hire somebody that's a little bit more, what's the word I'm looking for? Maybe approachable. Maybe she's, uh, and use that person as the token black person. And that person's so excited to get any kind of recognition that they'll jump into that tokenism and not even realize that that's what's going on, that they're being used. They're like, look, we've got a black person. Look, she's right here. Yeah. So we're no longer racist. We have one black person that represents. Doesn't matter that for the past three years, you haven't, you put, You've had, I don't know, 36 or 40 covers. And out of those 40 covers, three people of color have been on them and none of them have been South Asian. So I don't really like I haven't met a publication that is so tone deaf and they're trying always just feels contrite and tokenized. Like it, it never feels like it's actually rooted in any kind of change. It just feels like it's bandwagon jumping, right? Like we're going to jump on the bandwagon because the big thing now is body positivity, but we are going to sell it next to diet pills or we're going to sell it next to clothing that tells you how to hide your figure flaws. And for those of you who are listening, there's no such thing as figure flaws. Everybody has a different figure and 
nobody has a flawed figure. So it's just like, listen to me, I'm getting so fired up about this because it just pisses me off. And their, and their reaction to it is not to engage me or anybody who's doing the work, like the Yoga and Body Image Coalition, which I'm a part of, yes. not to engage us in a conversation and ask us how to change, but to steal our work, co-opt it and put it in their magazine. So that's how they react or to ignore us entirely. Those are just a bunch of angry women. Well, there's enough of a, if we get enough people together, we, our voice gets heard. And uh, you know, I can honestly say, <laughs> I've seen a decline in, in, in what they're doing. And I think it's directly related to the fact that they don't ever offer any diversity. They don't ever offer a different perspective. They're really just about, appeasing whoever they sell advertising to because if you flip through their book that's mostly what it is and there's a lot of diet and fitness culture that seeped onto that yoga mat there and the whole thing is just a waste of everybody's time mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> it doesn't actually represent anything that's real the, I, and it, yeah sorry go ahead no I was just gonna say and I think the people I respect the most in this industry aren't even a part of that publication yeah and I want to I want to get your perspective on the you know like di- how diet culture and yoga, like the real philosophies of yoga are completely contrary to one another. But before I jump to that, I really I want to ask you, what can people like myself who have privilege, how how can we be better allies here? Well, you know what, when people of color speak up and invite you to come to the table, come to the table and use your privilege to help lift up other voices. I had a very prominent, very famous yoga teacher reach out to me and want me to be a part of some work she was doing around Black Lives Matter. And I could feel in her email, she wasn't actually being genuine. Once again, she was bandwagon jumping, right? Like she was just like, you know, I see this thing going on and I see people talking about social justice and I want to stay relevant. So maybe I can jump on the social justice bandwagon too. And it was, it didn't feel genuine. Mm. So I wrote her back and I said, if you're really interested in being a part of this conversation, find the organizations that are already doing this work and lend your voice and lend your platform to those organizations. There's no need for you who doesn't have the knowledge or doesn't seem to be plugged into the situation based on the email that you sent me to fully understand what's going on because you're only going to make a fool of yourself. It, it it comes across as this white saviorism that nobody's really interested in. So go to those organizations that are already doing the work and say, hey, how can I help? What can I do? And those organizations will be happy to, for, to use your platform. I also noticed when she reached out to me, she wasn't actually sharing any work. I go, you can start by just sharing the work of the people who are doing this on your platform. You've got a million or whatever followers on your platform. If you share that work and go, look, this is really great work that I support, that's how you become a great ally. But mm-hmm. trying to come in and say, I know more than you, or I can speak to your experience because I have a university degree, or my husband's black, or my girlfriend's black, so I know what you're going through. You don't. Like, you really don't. And it's kind of insulting to come in and just try to kind of take over. But if you become part of the collective, it's so our voices are stronger together. And the truth is, white people will listen to other white people. So that's what we need. We do need people of, um, of all ethnicities to come to the table and understand that there's a huge injustice going on and use your privilege as a platform by reaching out to these organizations and saying, I'm here to help. What can I do? Thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Is there anything else you want to add on that, on that subject matter before we, we jump to Move on. diet <laughs> diet? Yeah. When we're almost at a close, but I do want to, I had so many more things I wanted to ask you, but honestly, yeah, no, this no is worries. so good, but yeah. Is, I knew that any- was going to happen. That's a big topic. That's a huge topic. Yeah, but it's no, so important. Good. Yeah. I I said it's, well. <laughs> good, good. Well, it's so important, but yeah, I want to talk to you about the, how, you know, diet culture and yoga culture and how that like the well, the bullshit of diet culture, I should yes. say, not the philosophies. It's, Let's it's be real shit. here. Bullshit. <laughs> Whatever the biggest shit you can find, that's the shit that it is. But how does that go against the true philosophies of yoga? Because I think that's important for people to 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 understand. Well, you know what? Uh, in North America, yoga has come to this continent primarily as an exercise, and we kind of saw it come to the continent in the in the early '50s, and it came to California specifically with a, a person named Indira Devi, who kind of linked yoga and beauty and youth and all this kind of stuff together. But 
what I've noticed in my own practice and my own studies. So I started out in high school as a group fitness leader. So I used to do those high low classes class and all this fitness stuff. And what would happen in the fitness culture when I was there is we were always looking for the next thing, right? So we started off with jazzercise and then jazzercise became high low and then high low became boot camp and then boot camp became group cycling and there's all, you know, step class and there's always the next evolution into fitness. And then all of a sudden as the baby boomers started aging and everybody was hurting themselves at the gym, we see the next thing become yoga, but then we see it as power yoga, right? It's, it becomes the thing where we only focus on the physical. We only focus on these difficult asana. We only focus on getting a yoga bum or whatever. And it it really became like this huge fitness craze when we saw Madonna in the 90s, right? She said she did yoga and she was in her 40s maybe and she looked so great and all of a sudden everybody was, you know, running off to the local yoga studio. There was this big surge in yoga after she had mentioned it. And I think because of like the evolution of diet and fitness culture, and this became the next exercise craze, that's kind of how it showed up. But I, I find it's the focus on the physical is, is what has pulled it away from its roots. You know, the very first thing we learn as yoga practitioners or yoga teachers is something called ahimsa, and that's nonviolence. And people interpret that in many different ways. People interpret that as nonviolence. You know, we don't eat animals or, you know, we're kinder to the environment. So it's interpreted in a lot of different ways. And all those ways are, you know, are right and correct. I'm not saying that. But I also believe that ahimsa begins at home. And I find that the diet called diet and fitness culture is creating violence to your self-esteem yes. and to your body. And that's directly in conflict with the ideas of peace and kindness. Ahimsa starts at home. So I remember my one of my first yoga teachings for my yoga teacher was like, when you look in the mirror and look at your body and you say whatever disparaging things you say about your body, that's violence towards yourself. And yeah. you need to think about that, right? And that's counter to what we're teaching on the yoga mat. And that was the very first disconnect that I saw. And the fact that we don't teach mindfulness practices, particularly as the primary focus of yoga classes, the primary focus of of a physical asana practice in any studio you go into here where I live and pretty much anywhere I've ever practiced in a public studio is, you know, the asana. How do I get to this perfect pose? And, you know, and if I can't get there, there's something somehow wrong with my body that I can't get to this pose. And that's, again, the big disconnect. Yoga teaches us that we are perfect as we are. Let's show you. The fitness industry teaches us you need to just be dissatisfied because, you know, you don't look this way and and we're going to fix you. And, and, and those are the two huge disconnects. And somehow the fitness and wellness industry, which is just a, just the evolution of the fitness industry, they call it wellness now, yeah. has, has seeped onto the yoga mat because a lot of the times there were fitness teachers who were teaching these yoga stretches or it was the next big fitness craze. So you just applied whatever principles you learned in your fitness class to your yoga practice. And that that's, that's my arrogant opinion. But that's what I've seen happen. You know, even when I started teaching, you know, the primary focus was on all this, you know, having this yoga body. And I was just like, whoa, how did we get here? But I that's what I think influenced it. Yeah. And, and kind of hearing you talk about the, the where yoga came from, um, how it was for op- oppressed people to get you know, to the asana, the asana. Yeah. The yeah. physical. Yeah. 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 Get stronger. And once you can Google this, I'm not making this stuff up, but it, cause it was, a, it was, it was primarily to start a medicine, a healing, a connection. So when you look at the yoga sutras, there's very little conversation or uh, reference to any kind of asana. Asana itself, the practice opposes the postures means seat. Asana means seat. So you're taking a seat in your own consciousness. You're taking a seat in medicine meditation. You're figuring out who you are on the inside. But the rest of the world or the diet and fitness culture is like, oh, look, we can add some gymnastics. So when you see people in handstands and complicated arm balances, we can add calisthenics. But a lot of that was to get people fit for a revolution. So it wasn't always about that. It was really about sitting in meditation for the longest time and applying you know, the eight limbs of yoga to your life. And you, you can look those up because it, it would take me another two hours to explain those. But you, once again, you can, this is all Googleable. 
Google, you can find all of this stuff <laughs> there. So yeah, no, it's 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 really interesting to hear you talk about it because it's uh, well, especially I mean, especially where I live, it's like yoga culture is diet culture here. Oh, sure it is. <laughs> and I know there's I know there's places that aren't. I know there's I know there's a lot of because there's there's also a lot of people who are who are body positive and focused on social justice here as well. But you know the the kind of mainstream and what you see and and especially like the particular area that I live in here, it's very diet culture affiliated. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I think it's, it's important to be critical about and understand where the roots of yoga really came from and how those, how those two things don't, shouldn't be interacting. Yeah. 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 They don't come together. They don't, it doesn't make sense. And just before I jumped on this podcast, I was at the grocery store and I bought this, my favorite soup was on sale. It's this Thai coconut soup. And I was all excited about it. And I was buying all these boxes of the soup. And the person who was packing my groceries said to me, is it healthy? And I'm like, okay, define healthy. Like I can't turn this stuff off. Right. Yeah. I'm like, okay, please define healthy. And she's reading the label. I go, what are you looking for? I said, if you really, I go here, here's the thing. And I say, I say this to her, I'm sure she was not prepared for this whole diatribe for me. I'm like, I've only got five minutes. I got to be on a podcast in half an hour. So I'm just going to tell you this right now. You have been conditioned. And I just just lay into her and I go, if you want to be healthy, honest to God, put on your running shoes and move. Like just go for a walk. You don't need to go to the gym. You don't need to lift heavy weights. You don't need to do any of that. If this is, you know, move in a way that makes your body feel good. And you know what? Here's the thing I said to her, eat when you're hungry. Oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> Eat when you're hungry. Because the diet and fitness industry has told you not to trust your body and that hunger is a bad thing. I can tell you something. Hunger is your body's way of saying, hey, I need a little bit more fuel. You know, we're working really hard today. You know, feed me something good. I go, if you stick to eating good whole foods that are not highly processed and you eat when you're hungry or, and you just enjoy your life and you eat a piece of cake and there's no guilt associated. I had two donuts yesterday and I thought that was the best thing ever. I didn't for a moment think that I was a bad person or cheating. <laughs> I had a friggin' donut. I ate it and I thought I have two. I ate it and it was awesome. And I told my husband, he came home. I had the most divine experience. I had this coconut toasted donut. Oh, that sounds right up my alley. I'm telling you, I went to Tim Hortons. They rarely have these donuts because they're so popular. And I was like, oh, you have my donut. (laughs) I'll take two. And I told her, just get out and move. And I told her to grab the book Health at Every Size by Dr. Linda Bacon. I go, the first 32 pages will change your life. I said, if you just eat when you're hungry and enjoy what you're eating and try to eat things that are like, that haven't been interfered with (laughs) by the outside world, you will be healthy. Yeah. Yeah. And even if you eat when you're not hungry, you're, it's still okay. (laughs) And eat eat a donut or what a pizza chop, make sure you're enjoying every moment of it and don't let diet culture tell you it's a bad thing because they're wrong, you know? So yeah. Sorry. Sorry. That's my diatribe. Yeah. Yeah, back well, to that. Eat when you're not hungry too. <laughs> eat when you want to eat, eat whatever you want to eat and enjoy what you're eating. I just, I'm over all of it. I know. I know. I always just say, eat like a grown ass woman. Like yeah. just eat like a grown ass woman. Why is oh it my that hard? God. <laughs> how yeah. did we get here? Like, how did we get here? It's yeah. just ridiculous. I know it is. Well, on that note, because that could just go for another hour. <laughs> uh, he's like, he's like, don't get me started. Like, just don't get me started. I'm sure we, I'm sure you have other things you got to tend to today. But uh, I really I appreciate that this was amazing. You are this was so informative for me. And I know it will be for everybody listening. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. It was uh, delightful to talk to you. And I, I, you know, I'm always excited to talk to a fellow Canadian yeah. who's doing kind of work in the community and have, you know, allies and colleagues. That was super fun. That was great. Thank you so much, Diane. Rock on. Thank you, Summer. Woohoo. How amazing was that? That was one of those episodes where I just feel so fired up after. So I hope that you feel the same way. Diane is so incredible. I feel like we could have gone on for three more hours. I want you to know that you can find all of the links and the resources that she mentioned at summerinandin.com forward slash 88. And if you want to join the discussion, come into my Facebook group, Break the Rules with Summer In and In, and let's, let's talk about it. Let me know what what you thought.
thought of the episode, what you learned from it, and what you want to hear more of. Thank you again so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And I will see you next time. Rock on. Rock on.